0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. As students prepare to go back to school, whether in person, online, or a combination of both, Students and staff know that things will be different due to COVID-19. What precautions can help kids go back safely to school? Here to discuss back-to-school recommendations is Mayo Clinic Pediatric Infectious Disease expert, Dr. Napuni Rajapakse. Dr. Napuni Rajapakse, thanks for joining us again today.
3: Thanks for having me back.
2: So, simple question. How should parents decide uh, whether to send their children back to school or do uh, uh, online uh, education?
3: So this is a, a really challenging thing that I think all parents are grappling with, with right now. Um, unfortunately, it's not, not simple and there's a lot of different uh, factors to weigh and consider as parents try and make the decision that is best for their own child and their own family. Um, I think there's multiple layers to think about here. One kind of starting at the, the biggest layer, which is what is going on in your community right now. Um, we have a variable transmission occurring county by county, even within our state, and definitely a lot of variability across the country um, as to areas that are seeing significant amounts of ongoing transmission and some areas that have things under better control. And so I think that's a really important part of the equation uh, to take into account when making this decision. Going down to the next level, I think it's really important to know what your local school um, is planning and what your local school infrastructure is. Um, there have been many recommendations uh, made by organizations like the CDC or the American Academy of Pediatrics about strategies we can use to try and keep our children and uh, staff as safe as possible in the school setting and so it will be really important to know what is being implemented in in your child's school um, and what the plans are in the event, which is is likely to happen at some point across all of our school systems um, in the event that someone does test positive within the school. Going down to a more specific level I think then we have to think about your own family and who is within your family and what the uh, illness risk is within your family. So we have many uh, families that live in multi-generational households. Um, there may be grandparents within that home and we know that so elderly are at higher risk for developing more uh, severe illness or a disease if they do get infected. And so I think that's an important uh, consideration, along with whether other family members have underlying health conditions that would put them at high risk if they were exposed. And then you get down to the, the child themselves. I think there's a lot of specific um, educational needs that children have. Um, some of whom did not have those needs met by virtual options. And so I think that's an important consideration along with any um, underlying health conditions your own old child may have, which may increase their risk for being more likely to develop a a symptomatic or severe illness if they were to get infected. So that's a lot of different things um, for parents to be thinking about and weighing. I think, um, thankfully, they don't need to make all of these decisions necessarily themselves, there will be guidance from your local public health officials, your local schools, and for anyone who has underlying conditions, um, definitely would encourage them to speak with their own physicians who know their family and their child well, um, to give you a, a sense of what the risks may be in your particular situation and help you to got, uh, navigate some of these challenging questions and decisions.
2: Yeah, it's, it, you're right on in terms of it's a multifactorial process in decision-making <laughs> And you make a good point about the family and also the students, but also the teachers. So in general, what recommendations do you have about how staff and students can keep themselves safe should they decide to go back to school?
3: So I think the teachers are a really critical part of of this decision and the decision making around opening of schools. If you think about all of the people who are present in a school setting and their risk of developing severe illness, uh, teachers or the adults in the school setting are really the highest risk group. And so I think their input and uh, their involvement with these decisions is really important going forward. Um, There are things that teachers can do to keep themselves uh, safe. So certainly things like uh, wearing a mask, we are uh, advocating for as one of the most effective ways to reduce transmission, especially in indoor settings or in settings where physical distancing is difficult to do. If teachers are teaching children who are not able to wear masks especially, then addition of things like uh, eye protection become uh, even more important. Um, I think special attention needs to be paid to what is happening around mealtimes. Mealtimes are a high-risk period of time because people have to remove their masks to eat and so ensuring that space is available for teachers to physically distance which becomes even more critically important when you're not wearing a mask um, will be really important for for schools to think about and and plan around Um, probably the highest risk in school settings will be transmission between adults and so putting measures in place to decrease the opportunities for that to happen will be an important part Um, that's along with all the other things that we've been advocating including excellent hand washing cleaning of high-touch surfaces. All of these different strategies need to be used together because none of them alone is 100% protective. And so it's really all these layers of different things that will help to keep our teachers and our students safe in a school setting.
2: Yeah, you make a good point in terms of, you know, how grateful we are to our teachers and obviously there's things that they, they can control. But what about the children? So for example, let's say you have multiple children who are younger, uh, wearing masks, they have siblings. Should they share masks with siblings? Should they be washing the mask every day? Uh, what are your thoughts there about the children?
3: Yeah, so masking uh, and kids is a really great, great topic. I think there are things that we can do to help children, especially young children, uh, become accustomed to wearing a mask. So we recommend uh, masks for anyone over two years of age, um, aside from anyone who would have difficulty removing the mask themselves if needed. So, for example, children with uh, underlying neurologic conditions that would prevent them from being able to remove the mask um, would be an example of that. Um, otherwise, uh, definitely there's things that uh, parents and families can start doing, and I would encourage them, if they haven't already started, to start doing this early um, to help get kids used to wearing a mask and uh, interested in wearing a mask. In a school setting. So with kids, uh, having them involved in choosing the mask, choosing the color of the mask or a pattern or their favorite character on the mask can make their acceptance of the mask more likely um, if they like it. If the mask is not comfortable, they probably will not wear it. And so making sure that you have a variety of masks and that they've tried them on before you send them off to school um, and that the mask fits well. So properly covering both their nose and their mouth and uh, going underneath the chin um, will be really important. It's important to talk to kids about mask wearing. It's important to role model good mask wearing as adults and parents as well. Um, And especially things like how to safely put on and take off your masks. So uh, just touching the ear loops and not touching the front of the mask or the back of the mask if you're removing it ensuring you wash your hands before and after handling your mask at any time. And especially when it comes to kids, just reminding them that they shouldn't be sharing masks with their friends, they shouldn't be trading masks, uh, making sure that their masks are labeled with their name or initial so that they can easily identify it. Um, And masks should be washed at the end of, of each day and a new mask should be used each day. And certainly if they become wet or visibly soiled, they should be be uh, cleaned and a new mask should be used so making sure your child has a backup mask available um, in their backpack or at their desk um, at school will be really important as well
2: you you mentioned hand washing and so for children should it be soap and water should it be these uh, gels that you can get what would you recommend because obviously especially the younger children their skin can be a little bit sensitive
3: yeah so either soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub are um, adequate for hand hygiene and uh, we know that this virus is easily inactivated um, or removed from the surface of the hands by both methods so Kids are more likely to use what is easily available to them and so both options should be provided and whichever um, is most convenient at the time can be used. Um, It is important and I think good to do a refresher before they return to school on how to properly wash your hands. So at least 20 seconds um, with soap and water or uh, it should take at least 20 seconds for your hands to feel dry if you're using alcohol-based hand rub. Walk through the steps of that with your child so that they're aware and um, remember all the steps to do it properly.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after
2: this. Sanj Kakar. Here to discuss back-to-school recommendations is Mayo Clinic pediatric infectious disease expert Dr. Napuni Rajapakse. So we've got the children in school and they're learning, but as you know, part of the school is about the extracurricular activities. What are the risks involved about playing sport or doing other activities such as band or choir? or even the
3: theatre? So extracurricular activities are are so important to childhood development. They're so important to developing new skills and developing character amongst our children and our students. So I can't uh, overestimate their kind of importance. Um, But there are unique risks associated with them as well. So if you take something like sports, um, obviously, there's a variety of sports, but we would uh, worry most about risk of transmission in sports where there's close contact. So if you think about uh, sports like basketball or wrestling or rugby, those types of sports, um, you have children who are in close contact with each other. And when you have that situation, the risk of transmission is higher. It's also quite difficult to do strenuous sports while wearing a mask. And so that may or may not be possible for many of those types of sports. And you add an additional layer of risk if you uh, cannot wear a mask in those situations. So I think we really need to think carefully about what the Uh, main priorities are, which I think at least initially will be instructional time for students. And then if we're able to achieve those things safely, start to add back some of these other activities, which are certainly very important, but also need to be guided by the amount of transmission we're seeing and how successful we are in keeping the rates of transmission down. Other uh, extracurricular activities outside of sports, so things like choir practice, we know that uh, early on there were some outbreaks that were linked to um, choirs, uh, usually when they were singing in an indoor setting um, and in close proximity to each other. So there certainly are any time you're speaking loudly or singing, uh, more droplets that are produced. um, And we know that this Infection is primarily spread, spread by respiratory droplets. And so there are things that can be done, such as doing choir practice outdoors and having kids spaced out uh, at least six feet um, to decrease the risks. Um, but we'll have to be a bit creative uh, when we're looking at activities like that as well.
2: Yeah, I'm sure, uh, as you said, this is not something we've be witnessed before. And so, as you're saying, learning to think outside of the box is, is critical. A good example is choir practice outdoors. So obviously we're trying to do our best to keep our kids safe, but let's say they get exposed to somebody with COVID-19. What should they do? What should their parents be doing uh, to keep them safe now, if they may have potentially been exposed?
3: So that's a great question. And I think, um, most people are saying, and I agree with this, that it is somewhat inevitable that we will have cases that appear within the schools once we reopen them. I think it would be naive to think that we're going to get through this school year without any um, exposures or cases. And so certainly this is something that uh, schools and families should be aware of what the plan is um, in advance if this were to happen. So incidental exposures such as walking past someone in a hallway that may test positive, those would be low risk scenarios and the recommendations and that situation would be different than if you had spent uh, more than 15 minutes of time within six feet of someone who tested positive, which is one of the current uh, CDC exposure definitions. If we do think that the exposure was um, high risk, uh, generally We would recommend quarantining or not uh, returning to a school setting uh, during the incubation period of the virus which is the time that it would take to develop symptoms if you were infected um, which is two to 14 days i think it's important for people to know kind of what is uh, being recommended locally some of these recommendations may vary depending on on where you are and the nature of the exposure and the amount of uh, transmission going on in your community but those are some of the general things we would think about when approaching a situation like that.
2: So as you said, the incubation period is is 14 days. Apart from staying home, should they get tested?
3: Testing is a little bit of a a complicated answer, I would say. It will depend on the situation. It'll depend on the person and whether they have underlying um, health risks that uh, we may recommend that they be tested for. Certainly, if they were to develop symptoms, that may be a situation where you would recommend they, they get tested. But that I would look to kind of your local local guidance um, as the best place to, to get that recommendation from.
2: As one goes into the, the fall and the winter, obviously other illnesses come along, such as, for example, the flu. What's your advice about the flu shot? Every year we're we're told we should get the flu shot. Is that something you think we should do, hold off on this year?
3: So this year the flu shot is uh, as important, if not more important, than in previous years. We know that in children, uh, the symptoms of influenza caused by influenza virus, the symptoms of COVID-19 can be indistinguishable, which means you can't look at someone and say they've got the flu or they've got COVID-19. Whatever we can do to reduce the incidence of flu and the transmission of flu within our communities this year will be critically important. That includes a vaccine, which is one of the most uh, effective ways to reduce the risk of getting influenza, but maybe even more importantly, having serious illness associated with with influenza. And so we're definitely recommending this year anyone over six months of age should receive the flu vaccine. But in addition to that, we've seen over the last few months that uh, routine childhood immunizations amongst children have decreased over the course of this pandemic. And that has put us in a situation where we're at risk for having outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases like measles or whooping cough occur. um, And especially worrisome in the setting where you're going to bring uh, children back to classroom settings and so i would strongly encourage families to reach out to their primary care providers before any child returns to a school setting to ensure that their routine vaccines are all up to date before they do that as well
2: yeah thank you for making that very important point so let's say the the child has the flu shot but as you said the symptoms of covid-19 and influenza are pretty similar even if they've had the flu shot and then they get symptoms Are you then still advising to go back into the quarantine of two weeks before going back to school, for example?
3: So I think the recommendations are going to vary on a somewhat case by case basis um, and based on test results and whether the child tests positive for influenza or if they test positive for for COVID 19, the the recommendations might vary. But I think the uh, foundation of the recommendation is that anyone who is ill should not be, be going to school, whether a student or a staff member. Um, we really need everyone to take on that responsibility, um, even for what might seem like a mild illness in a child, like a runny nose or a sore throat. Um, that could be COVID-19. We know most children are either asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. And so we need to take those seriously and keep kids home if they are unwell. Um, that's not to say that is uh, without challenge for parents who are trying to return to work also. And so I think we really need to um, have uh, support in place for parents to make those right decisions uh, to keep their kids home and not be punished by employers or otherwise um, for uh, calling in for for time off themselves. I think that's really important as a society that we get behind that, um, because without that, um, the chances we'll be able to have longevity to our school reopening will be will be small.
2: That's a great point, Dr. Rajapaksi. I mean, it's it's easier said than done at times, but I appreciate you making that comment. Uh, Napuni, anything else that we want to add that we uh, haven't talked about?
3: I think it's just uh, really important going forward here. These are very challenging decisions that people are having to make to weigh lots of different factors. Um, The right decision for one family may be different for another family. So I think it's important for us to be kind and respectful of that. Um, And I think it's going to be important for people to be flexible. However, we start off the school year will not be how we end it potentially. Um, And I think we need to have backup plans in place. If schools end up needing to close, we need to have um, supports in place for parents and families in that event. Um, and I think schools need to have plans in place to know before we even open the doors, kind of how we're going to monitor the situation, how we're going to react to situations where someone tests positive. Um, and I think it's really going to be a big, big team up to do this for our kids and to do this as safely as possible in the current environment.
2: Uh, thanks to Mayo Clinic Pediatric Infectious Disease Expert, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi for sharing recommendations on how to safely return to Thank you so much.
1: Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Thinking of skipping a flu shot this year? The researcher who leads the effort to find an effective vaccine for the influenza virus strongly urges you to reconsider. People think, well, it's just the flu, explains Dr. Gregory Poland, head of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group. But he says in the US alone last year, 80,000 Americans died from influenza and its complications, and that almost a million were hospitalized. That's a huge burden of disease, much of it preventable by flu vaccine. That's why Dr. Poland recommends everyone over the age of six months get a vaccination. Influenza can cause respiratory sinusitis, pneumonia, meningitis, and other complications. For people that have other medical conditions like heart disease, it can lead to a heart attack or a stroke. For diabetics, their diabetes can go out of control, says Poland. He stresses a vaccination shot cannot give you the flu. It also cannot stop every case of it. However, you should still get one. You don't want to wait until you get an infection and disease and then say, well, now I'll treat it, says Dr. Poland. The much-preferred thing recommended by every professional body in the U.S. is getting a flu vaccine every year. Even when it's not 100% effective in preventing symptoms, you're still preventing the major complications. And in other news, pregnancy is a great time to talk about heart health. Dr. Sharon N. Hayes, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says that women should know that they are at risk for heart disease and that pregnancy is a time of increased risk. She says women should know what their risks are and address them and talk to their doctor about what should I be doing. Maybe my blood pressure is a little bit high or maybe my blood pressure medication already. Should I stop it? Should I switch to a different one? But have the conversation. By talking about it, women can learn the best ways to stay heart healthy dr hayes says to sit down with your family practitioner internist or ob and talk about all sorts of health issues such as making sure that the things you're doing for your heart like exercise and not smoking and making sure the medications that you're taking and the diet that you're eating are good for the baby and for the heart Pregnancy puts a strain on the heart that most healthy hearts can handle, but that strain may unmask underlying conditions. Now, symptoms women may experience during a heart attack include chest pain, pain that radiates to the neck, jaws, or down the arms, or between the shoulder blades, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, sweating, fainting, profound fatigue, and nausea or vomiting. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. If you've noticed some dark spots in your vision or maybe strings that look like cobwebs, you may have what are called eye floaters. They're more common in nearsighted people and also more common as we age. These floaters may drift about when you move your eye and may
5: appear to dart away when you look directly at them. They may be most noticeable when you look at a plain, bright black uh, background like the blue sky or a white wall. So what are floaters... Does it mean that you're dying, which is what I thought the first time I had one, and are they a cause for concern? Here to discuss eye floaters is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Amir Khan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khan. It's nice to meet you.
6: Thank you, Tom and Tracy. Um, first of all, I would say you probably are not dying.
5: Okay, good. Well, yeah,
6: But she's too young for a floater, isn't she?
5: <laughs> are they, can you get them at all ages? Is there a certain age for floaters?
6: There's not a certain age, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, in the more nearsighted people, uh, they can notice floaters often at an earlier age. So I wouldn't necessarily have an age cut off for floaters.
4: Um, And what causes it? What are you really experiencing?
6: Most of the time, and this isn't in all cases, but most of the time what the floaters are are bits and clumps of your vitreous, which is a gel substance in the back of the eye.
4: So the inside part of the eye is filled with a jelly? Correct. And these are little...
5: Chunks of jelly. Dust? (laughs) What are they? Chunk is maybe not the right word.
6: (laughs) Maybe clump.
5: (laughs) A clump of jelly.
6: Um, So as we age, what is initially a firm gel-like substance begins to liquefy. And as it liquefies, it can contract and break up into bits and pieces. Ah. Those bits and pieces are what you may notice as a floater and what I can see as a floater when I look into your eye. Are
4: they of
6: concern? The floaters themselves are more of a nuisance, annoyance type problem, where, as Tracy mentioned, if you look at a blue sky or a white page, they become more noticeable. Where it becomes a concern as if they're associated with something else. For example, as this jelly substance contracts and breaks up into bits and clumps, it pulls away from the retina. The, so ret- the
4: retina is like the film in a camera, the back of the eye, what you see with. Correct. Okay.
6: Correct. So as it pulls away from the retina, it can tug on the retina, and that can give you flashing lights. And that tugging can sometimes tear the retina. So if fluid from within the eye gets in underneath that tear, the retina can separate kind of like wallpaper off a wall, and that's a retinal detachment. So we really recommend that anybody who has a new onset of floaters uh, sees their eye care provider for a dilated eye exam to make sure that the retina is intact.
5: Those ones, those floaters would not go away, though. Is that right? If if you've got a detached retina, it's not going to, like uh, usually a floater, you see it and then it's gone.
6: The floaters that we have from the jelly, the vitreous breaking up into bits and clumps, really don't go away completely either because the back of the eye is kind of a closed space. So they may shrink a little in time and the brain may learn to ignore them a little bit over time. But again, in certain situations, particularly with the lighting, uh, they tend to be more noticeable.
5: In general, when you have a floater, it's not that big of a deal. What can be a cause for concern?
6: Um, if I were to see a whole sudden shower of little specks, almost like little black bugs, and people, patients may say that there's a gnat there or some flies mm-hmm. there, and they try to swat them away, but they're not outside, they're inside their eye. Uh, Those can be causes for concern. The other thing is not all floaters are clumps of the vitreous jelly. So sometimes if the retina is torn, it can be a broken blood vessel, and those may be blood cells that you're seeing. Also in certain uh, underlying diseases such as diabetes, uh, those people are more prone to getting blood vessels that can break and bleed easily. So that may also be a source of floaters. Any onset of new floaters, I think, really deserves a a dilated eye exam.
4: Why are floaters more common in people who are nearsighted?
6: It's probably because the eye, most people are nearsighted. The eye tends to be longer.
4: Front to back or side to side?
6: Uh, Front to back. Okay. That tends to be longer. So the thought is that there might be more traction on the retina because things are stretched a little bit more in the eye.
5: Is there a treatment for them?
6: Uh, There really isn't a treatment for floaters. Um, Recently, people have started looking into whether they can laser the floaters. I think the jury is still out on that. Technically, uh, a retina specialist can go inside the eye and remove all of the gel substance, but that has its own inherent risks as well. And for something that is typically more of a, I'd say, nuisance annoyance type issue, we don't recommend doing that. In my mind, there's some concern about breaking those bigger floaters up into more smaller pieces, plus releasing all that energy in the back part of the eye.
5: Is there a way to prevent floaters?
6: Not really. Okay. Not really. Again, this whole process of the vitreous gel liquefying is, i put it more in the natural aging category.
4: All right. So you've told us that if you have floaters for the first time, and in particular if you have multiple ones, it's probably worth a checkup. Tell us about some other changes in vision or eye symptoms that ought to be checked out.
6: You know, in addition to floaters, if you notice an area of your vision is missing, that would be another good reason uh, to get a dilated eye exam. All right.
4: Reduced field of vision would be Reduced a field
6: of vision. Reduced visual acuity. You just can't see as clearly. Um, it may be something simple, like you need to get a new glasses prescription, but again, it could be anything else from cataract or macular degeneration.
5: That's tricky because it happens so gradually that you don't notice what you don't notice.
6: Correct. And oftentimes people don't notice until maybe for some reason they rub one eye, and then all of a sudden they're looking with their bad eye, and then they're oh, when did this happen?
4: All right, anything else we ought to worry about? Um, in
6: terms of the eyes?
4: Yeah, in term- <laughs> <laughs> well, we got lots to worry about, but things that ought to prompt one to go see their eye doctor.
6: Um, just in general, I would say um, every few years, it's probably reasonable to get an eye exam to measure things like the pressure inside your eye. Some things may be asymptomatic and best caught early. So I think routine eye care is important.
4: All right. See your doctor every three years or sooner if you need it, especially if you're new to floaters. (laughs) All right. We've been talking about eye floaters with a Mayo Clinic specialist, ophthalmologist, Dr. Amir Khan. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Khan. Good to have you on the program. Thank you, too. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss colorectal cancer and screening guidelines for younger adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, thanks to better awareness and screening, cancer of the colon and rectum rates have been declining in recent decades, overall. But, alarmingly, cancers of the colon and rectum are on the rise in younger adults, kids, hmm. uh, adults in their 20s, their 30s, and their 40s. You just kids. said kids. I <laughs> know yep. <laughs> well, this past May, the American Cancer Society changed their recommendation about screening. They now say you should get your first colorectal screening at age 45. That's down from age 50. So why
5: the rise, and what can be done about it? Joining us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida, to discuss is Mayo Clinic hematologist, oncologist, Dr. Pashtun Cassie. Welcome to the program, Dr.
4: Cassie. It's nice to meet you.
7: Thank you for having me.
4: Yeah, Dr. Cassie, thanks for uh, joining us. So overall, rates of cancer of the colon and rectum have been declining?
7: That is true. Uh, indeed, it's one of the few cancers where screening, uh, at least in the late 90s uh, with the advent of colonoscopy, uh, has been what uh, has allowed for cancer to be caught at an earlier stage. It is one of the few cancers that follows a pattern in terms of a polyp becoming something that is precancerous that then evolves into cancer over a period of time in the order of years, which allows for uh, an intervention, a screening Colonoscopy or a test uh, that can detect cancer early can prevent it and uh, overall has resulted in the decline.
4: But you've been removing the polyps that would otherwise ultimately turn into
7: cancer. True. And uh, you know, speaking of screening, while uh, colonoscopy or some form of scope uh, to look inside the actual colon, is one of the ways, but there are other tests as well which are relatively non-invasive that can also uh, be employed uh, to help diagnose these cancers early.
5: Why are the numbers rising when it comes to younger adults?
7: You know, that's uh, the most intriguing question right now. This observation was uh, something that was noted earlier last year uh, by research by Siegel and colleagues that was funded by the American Cancer Society. Uh, While indeed you see the uh, decline in the curves in the individuals in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that's attributed, uh, if you look at the decades, uh, it's attributable to around the time when colonoscopy and some of these screening interventions were introduced. But what's uh, surprising is why individuals in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, you're seeing a rise. So, you know, the millennials or or some of these other age groups that are born after the 80s as opposed to somebody who's born in the 50s or 60s, the risk of uh, cancer, uh, depending on the location, uh, was up to fourfold in some instances, which is not yet explained and is an area of ongoing research.
4: Unexplained.
7: Yes. And, you know, um, what's very intriguing is uh, the only thing that is recurrently coming up as a theme. What is very surprising is even though we think of colorectal cancer as uh, one entity or uh, just pretty much, simplistically speaking, a long piece of tubing, um, embryologically it's derived from different parts of the uh, body. So even the right side of the colon is... american cancer society our group at mayo we published our findings last month as well and again the same team pretty much uh, the incidence of uh, colon as well as rectal cancer more so the rectal cancer was uh, increasingly being seen in the individuals in their 20s 30s and 40s who you know by definition would not have met the screening guidelines right. now granted the recent guidelines have led to the age being moved from 50 to 45 for what we call the average risk individual that, by definition, you know, those individuals would not have met any criteria for screening. So often the problem is because they're not getting screened, by the time they're diagnosed with colorectal cancer, it's often advanced.
4: You know, most young adults don't think that they're going to get colon cancer, but what are the symptoms that they ought to
7: look for? Going back to uh, where the cancer originates, whether it's in the rectum versus the side of the colon versus the right side, often some of these symptoms are are not necessarily uh, something that one would consider uh, a a cancer as a diagnosis. Uh, Bleeding is one thing, uh, and especially with current uh, situation with them not meeting screening guidelines, if somebody has recurrent ongoing bleeding, that would be one thing to consider. Uh, Unexplained weight loss, changes in the bowel habits uh, in terms of constipation, or changes in the caliber of stool, or uh, if that persistently getting worse and are unexplained it is definitely worthwhile bringing it to the attention of the doctor now often bleeding is not necessarily profound especially if the cancer originated on the right side if uh, on routine blood work uh, or, or a visit to a primary care physician especially in the male if anemia which is low blood counts uh, that should always uh, signal signal uh, flag uh, because Anemia, especially in males and even in females, uh, in addition to menstrual blood losses, uh, is often bleeding from the gut unless proven otherwise. So that those would be signs to look for. Uh, and obviously in advanced cases, it can present as uh, abdominal pain and liver and lung tends to be the common sites of metastases. So often somebody gets a scan for some other reason and they pick up these spots which then, uh, when biopsied, are consistent with somebody having colon cancer.
4: But otherwise, uh, you want to start screening uh, with a colonoscopy at age 45, or are there other methods that you could use if you didn't want to do colonoscopy?
7: There are other methods. Uh, one of the recent uh, advances has been the development of what we call a stool uh, DNA-based testing. That is uh, something that uh, Mayo was involved in, in terms of development. In addition to that, stool blood blood-based uh, assays, uh, they're not great, but they're at least uh, an alternative. Uh, because often what's been an issue is, even though we know a colonoscopy can diagnose and also treat these cancers or lesions early, uh, the challenge has been the uptake of colonoscopy. Uh, Nobody is too enthused about drinking uh, the PrEP for several days. Uh, or Because of that, even in most states of the United States, it's anywhere between 50% to a two-thirds where uh, people are getting the recommended age, is, uh, it's not one of the most popular of procedures. Uh, and the goal has been to at least uh, take that up to at least 80%. And with these newer tests being available, uh, that is one way of uh, increasing awareness and uptake amongst uh, individuals who consider these testing.
5: Finally, there's been a shift in the way that uh, ca- uh, colon cancer treatment happens. Chemo, then surgery, then chemo again. Is that correct?
7: So in terms of both for... Uh, advanced cases as well as uh, rectal cancer specifically one paradigm shift that is uh, happening as we speak is instead of uh, doing what we call mop-up chemo afterwards moving it before uh, surgery when the person is uh, in, in better shape and hasn't had any surgery that is one paradigm shift that has happened one exciting mean that has happened for our patients with uh, metastatic cancer is immunotherapy is something that uh, Them who have what we call uh, Lynch syndrome-associated colon cancer, or uh, there's a term called mismatch repair deficient colon cancer, which uh, represent about four to five percent of metastatic cancer patients. Now, granted, it's a small number, but for those individuals, uh, immunotherapy, both as single or combination, has therapy with uh, some form of surgery, including liver surgery, if it's few metastases, as well as lung surgery. Uh, we are trying to cure uh, patients with uh, colorectal cancer, even if they are stage four, which was not an option a decade ago.
4: Well, it's good to know you, that you've got those uh, new, better options available. But the key here is to recognize the fact that you can get colon cancer even when you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, and make sure you get screened starting at age 45.
7: Absolutely, and and for certain uh, races uh, in terms of uh, African Americans, that that age is even earlier.
4: Dr. Pashtun Kasi, hematologist-oncologist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us.
5: And that's our program for this week.
4: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
4: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.